What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effin' World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, It's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And in the studio, we've got live, finally, Gabby Magnuson and Jake Dello. We're back, live. (laughs) But not Pete, because he's still in officer training school. Just a couple quick hits, news items, and shout outs before we get into the uh, proper episode. One is that uh, my thumb is on the scale with this a little bit, but Elizabeth Warren, she has a piece a great piece in the atlantic about ending endless war i didn't want to make it the armchair analysis because it's a little too thumb on the scale (laughs) but uh i just wanted to give a shout out to the piece because it's really good and you know to be to be frank uh, i think some people are concerned about whether a woman and especially elizabeth warren can beat trump um second shout out on the same point the answer is yes she can beat trump And some proof of that to me comes in the form of friend of the pod, Daniel Larison, who writes for the American Conservative, but who wrote favorably about this Atlantic piece that Elizabeth Warren just published. So uh, the piece is about how we can get the fuck out of the Middle East and end endless war. In every sense, it's kind of to the left of Bernie on foreign policy. So like if you're harboring illusions that Bernie is unique on foreign policy distinct from Warren, more left than Warren, more woke or whatever the fuck this piece kind of disproves that it forces you to like reckon with the reality that they're way more convergent on foreign policy than some people would like to admit and if your other reservation about Warren is like well she can't beat Trump there are conservatives who are speaking favorably about some of the things she's saying like our man Daniel Larison so I just wanted to give shout outs all around there the, the interesting thing is right like the from what i see just being obviously a spectator they're more like they're more alike than nothing like on foreign policy especially compared to everyone especially else especially compared to everything everyone else i think the difference comes domestically but it doesn't seem bernie supporters want to admit that they just want to yeah. be sort of bernie and all bernie whereas yeah pragmatism sort of states that you know well bernie's very good too at like activating emotion and that's polit that's like the core of politics that's why trump is in office you know if you're leading with your heart because bernie has like activated you emotionally that there's nothing wrong with that you can you can be like look the man says revolution and for some reason i love the idea of chopping off heads or whatever you know like whatever it is i'm being a little tongue-in-cheek but like <laughs> but are you but are you that's <laughs> really how it is like I, I have to i have to back my candidate but like i like we've said many times like we've said many times i like bernie right if he's the guy he's the guy you know like i'll be all in with him if he's the one who wins the nomination but i think warren's got a plan for that Oh, 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 that was, oh, that one, that one went right to the chest, Yeah. Uh, another quick shout out to Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents uh, Southern California. In a congressional hearing this week, he cornered the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, John Rood, on the question of ending the Korean War. And he got uh, the Undersecretary of Defense to admit that ending the Korean War 
would be in the American interest. And that is, it seems, it probably seems like a small thing. Nothing's going to change in the next 12 months because it's still Trump territory, but that is moving the dial. So just flagging it, moving things in the right direction. So uh, shout out to Rokana. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of surprised the way he, uh, the way you said that. It's just like he finally admitted. I'm like, isn't that kind of almost a known thing? Well, <laughs> dude, a good so thing? I came out in favor of ending the Korean War. And so the issue is like North Korea is not a good actor. They're awful. They're yeah. the worst in the world. No, They're that. worse than the Chinese in, in many ways. In many ways. They're worse than Trump in many <laughs> ways. But there's a the our concern with them, our like main beef with them is about their nukes, and that needs to be delinked from this historical legacy thing. Um, and my argument, partly it, there's a there's a moral aspect to it, because it's like, how can you be opposed to ending war? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but there's a strategic there's a practical and strategic element here too, because even though in Washington it's dogma, it's consensus that like as long as North Korea is a rival and they're hostile toward us and they're threatening to attack our allies, how can we possibly end the Korean War? And it's like the fact that the war is sustained is one of the things, one of many things that the Kim regime uses to like justify and legitimate its existence. And I expect that we declare an end to the Korean War and we start a peace process it doesn't actually change anything with the nukes directly. It doesn't change anything with U.S. military presence directly, but it changes the context enough that if you combine it with a bunch of other moves, you could end up in a different reality. So it's not about X causes Y. It's about shaping the uh, container within which X and Y happen. So that's, that's sort of my thinking on top of the fact that if you're left, if you're woke, you can't be against war. So for the uninitiated, I guess, because when I was younger, I see that, you know, the Korean talks or try talks and it doesn't end well. Those two states are still at war, aren't they? So the Korean War never stopped. If you are not going to end the war, how can you expect the rivalry to go away? Like, how can you expect North Korea to be not hostile as long as the state of war exists? And that's like kind of my point. The magical part of this or the illusion is that the unrealistic thing is that you declare end of war and then everything is like unification, yeah. flowers bloom, and North Korea's nukes just evaporate. None of the strategic the strategic picture will not change, but we will distance ourselves from a very dirty, bad, shitty, lose-lose historical legacy. One that is has been ingrained in the North Koreans and that's manipulated by the regime in their favor. Um, and so we can still, if you like, if you really want to be a fucking enemy of North Korea, we can still do that, but just not be at a state of war with them. Right. I mean, the Trump administration is an enemy with Iran, but we're not in a state of war with Iran. Knock on wood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that's my thinking. Shout out to Ro Khanna. And then one other, uh, quick hit. China says that, uh, this in the past three weeks. It has said that it speaks for Sri Lanka and Myanmar and now Tonga <laughs> at the UN. T-O-N-G-A. Really? Yep. China. Okay. Yep. How did we get there? Oh, wait. No, we know how we got there, actually. And so this keeps happening. China is literally claiming other small countries that are sort of economically in in hawk in debt to them rhetorically as protectorates and we this is the rhetoric that should accompany the unequal treatment of states this is what you would expect from an imperial foreign policy and so like whatever other faults there are in the world you can't ignore especially if you're fucking semi-woke about you can't ignore an imperial pattern in chinese foreign policy and the fact that they've been they've they've been engaging in this like asymmetrical game with uh, smaller states in its periphery for a long time, feeding corruption, forcing, creating these. I, I think I've talked about this before. They create these things called strategic comprehensive partnerships bilaterally, where the the small state gets access to China's trade and investment, but in exchange. The small states have to forswear making alliances against uh, China, 
allowing air air and port access agreements that might possibly be used against China in the future. And all of this is playing like a very strategic game that's very, it's just like classically imperial. This is Victorian era sphere of influence politics. Yes, they did. I tweeted that. Mine is Victorian <laughs> era, but yeah. This this is the definition. I just published a journal article about spheres of influence. This is like ideal type sphere of influence. You're trying to exercise exclusionary control over another actor in international relations. This is so fucking bad. Th to me, this is like, I I've been seeing this pattern for a while in Chinese foreign policy feeding the corruption of small states, hurting civil society, committing structural violence against these states. But now the rhetoric is starting to line up where they're like claiming that they speak for these other countries and for, you know, the Antipodes, for New Zealand and Australia, it's Tonga now. It's not just Kyrgyzstan. It's not just Mongolia, right? This is now Pacific Islands. It's our backyard, also America's backyard. So this is a problem. You can't see my hand gestures, but I'm, yeah, like, I'm gesturing like, like a clash. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, the other problem is like, it's just like with free trade generally, it, the, the gains that you get are not distributed evenly. Like the gains from an economic relationship with China, they go disproportionately to the political elites of the country, to people who uh, are involved in big businesses that cash in. This happens in New Zealand too. Like the dairy lobby, the dairy industry, you know, like they're the ones disproportionately sounding off about how important the trading relationship is with China because that's their... That's their market, that's right? And so, like the how how much how important is trade with China for the GDP of the country? But then, how much of that trade affects the actual people of the country? It's not distributed evenly, so it enriches elites. This is the classic liberalism problem or neoliberal problem. China exacerbates. So, like trade relationships, uh, it matters how gains are distributed. It's not an unmitigated good. And that, that's separate from the fact that, like, it creates political uh, vulnerabilities, strategic vulnerabilities that China can exploit later. Real quick question, because I do know we have to move on. But <clears throat> how much, for example, I guess, like, especially in the case of, like, Tonga and stuff, where a lot of them turning to China and that sort of thing has to do with, like, America, like, pulling away from this sort of region? Well, so the in China's periphery, so all the stands like Kyrgyzstan yeah. and, all the, and and the Pacific Islands, they, what they share in common, aside from that they constitute China's geographic periphery or geopolitical periphery, is also that like these are places where generally the U.S. is like not there. There's a vacuum there. Yeah, yeah. there's a vacuum politically. There's a there, there's they're all weak states. I don't say that like throwing shade at the states, but like yeah. they're just like no. they're not strong governance. You know, most of them are not democratic. And the ones that are the, the, the quality of democracy erodes because of the political corruption that comes with these elite trading relationships with China. Yeah, sure. Um, because you get the politicians sort of like getting side payments and stuff mm. or steering contracts to benefit them. All of that's corruption, even when it's legal. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. For Prediction Market this week, we're going to go really through all three corners of the world. Number one, it's very topical this one, will the coronavirus in Wuhan lead to the, a travel ban by the United States or other Five Eyes governments by April this year? Uh, so, I'm by April this year. I'm going to say at least one of these Five Eyes governments is going to issue a travel ban by April. I've already seen like a lot of like voluntary precautionary warnings. And then I, this morning, actually, I saw that one airline has canceled all flights. I can't remember who and I can't remember which country, but it was a Five Eyes. I think it's like British Airways. British Airways, yeah. British Airways, yeah. So that's if the coronavirus is not contained. This is where everybody has to go very quickly, right? So British Airways, if they're the ones, they're the, the canary in the coal mine. So, uh, so I'm going to say, yeah, there is going to be an outright ban at some point. So that was that was our sort of most topical mainstream media-ish one. So we got that out of the yeah. way. 
Actually, can I change my change my answer to no? I'm going to change it to no. Okay, next question. Okay, (laughs) all right. That's the first change we've had. I think that's the most immediate change. I just realized everybody's like so corrupted by Chinese money that they can't even the U.S. can't cut themselves off. All right, and I know this is going to get me a bit of shit after the episode, but. I know we promised not to go back to Israel again for predictions, man. Oh, uh, kind of hard to this week. It's a soft. It's a. But this week, I, we didn't have a choice. Number two, will the recent United States proposed Israel-Palestine peace plan, called the Deal of the Century by some, be signed <laughs> and enacted before April this year? No, it will not. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you, thank you for that. I'm going to save some commentary no for stay off Twitter because yeah. Gabby has some relevant tweets. So, but no. No, fuck, was, no fucking way. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, it was... I, I couldn't not do it because as soon as I saw over the news that Netanyahu, our man, finally got... <laughs> finally, finally got charged. This will make this will make me one and one on Israel. Well, I'm pretty sure one side doesn't even... Isn't even yeah, engaging. Not, <laughs> it's not even... They're not yeah, even saying no. They're joke. just not even bothering. All right, number three. Will John Bolton testify before the Senate for Trump's impeachment trial by March the 1st? I think so. Uh, I, I don't. McConnell is now the leader, uh, Republican leader of the Senate is saying like, well, I don't know if I even have the votes to block witnesses. Some of the squishy uh, Republicans like Mitt Romney are doubling down on wanting witnesses. It's just it's not a trial if you don't have witnesses. It's in the fucking Bill of Rights, mm, right to a fair yeah. trial. Yeah. Like, so either there's going to be a trial or there's not. And if the whole, because this has been passed from the house and the way this is publicly framed is that it is a trial and also formally, officially, legally, it is a trial. So there has to be witnesses. But it's like, it's almost a farce, I guess to me, just, I don't understand American political law as well as some of our listeners would (laughs) personally, (laughs) but it just seems a bit of a farce. When you block a witness from testifying in a trial you're trying to defend someone against, it's almost like they know something that you don't want them to say. Well, both no. I didn't mention, yeah. <laughs> no. I, yeah. How dare you? I cannot believe there's gambling going on in this casino. Yeah, <laughs> the moral degeneracy, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So no, there's not going to be, I mean, wait. What was the question? She's <laughs> got Israel fever. Yeah, I'm still stuck on Israel. Oh, John Bolton testified. Yes, he's going to testify. I, so I didn't mention this in the intro, but like his his book leaked magically, probably by John Bolton. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, yeah. It, it presents smoking gun. Trump told me directly to withhold aid to Ukraine until they agree to investigate my political enemy, Joseph Biden. So that's a smoking gun. But, I mean, we've had a million smoking guns by now, so who knows? That's the farcical part of it, yeah. So we'll see if it changes anything, but yes, I believe he will testify. Let's jump into Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right, so uh, my first tweet today for Stay Off Twitter comes from Corey Pine, who is like, he's a truth to power guy in the like Silicon Valley context. So and he wrote a book that, frankly, it's in my Amazon wish list, but I haven't ordered it yet. Called like "Live, Work, Die," um, but he has good tweets. He writes good. He writes for the Baffler, which is like a pretty funny, uh, satirical kind of lefty-ish publication. But Gary Kasparov, friend of the pod, he wrote an op-ed called "A Popular Front to Stop Trump," and it was just about how, like, look, the whole spectrum of people on the left and center need to be allies of convenience to oppose Trump. And Corey Pine says, popular front? Fine, good. There's still some room in the back seat for resistance liberals, but we're going to need to take the keys because we saw you weaving back there. Three years of fecklessness and missed opportunities and no backup plans. The way I read this is like, or the reason why I wanted to flag it was like, yes, a popular front is needed. This is what was missing in Germany Uh, before the Nazis took over, right? And there's not enough cause, given what we've seen the last three years, to have faith that technocrats or elites are going to be, should be trusted to kind of like lead the movement against Trump. They should be part of it. They, you know, like anybody, this is the notion of a popular front. We We should be pragmatic about 
forging alliances in the name of like a larger goal of eliminating this cancer on democracy. <laughs> like too many technocrats, too many elites sell out, too many live in fear every day. Um, and as we talked about in the last time when we got together, like elitism is a problem in foreign policy, uh, just kind of generally. Having said that, resistance liberals are like, especially the ones working in the administration, are why the U.S. is not already a dictatorship. They're the ones holding the line. And that's why they're, the Corey Pine thing strikes me on a very conflicted level because it's like, yes, technocrats and elites need to be in the game. Um, and progressives and the like woke-ass left need to be allies with them, not just constant critics of them, critics of the resistance liberals and the technocrats, et cetera, but can't just trust elites to be in charge anymore. That's how we got to this point. Corey activated all kinds of things in me, which is why I wanted to flag it. The resistance liberals you're talking about, the ones that are still in the system, would they not, are they not already considered elites for the fact that they're able to stick around? and be able to still be... oh they are elites the the entire foreign policy apparatus is yeah. elitist like and the problem is that it's hard for it to be any other way because of how dynamic the world is because of how complex foreign policy issues are you actually do need people with expertise with their hands on the lever yeah. if you don't you can just trust jared kushner to make <laughs> middle east peace right and so like yeah, the <laughs> other it, unless you think that jared kushner will bring middle east peace Unless you think Trump will make peace with Kim Jong-un and get rid of his nukes, you need experts managing policy. That belief in technocracy is elitist almost like by its nature. Yeah. And so the dilemma is like, how do you expand um, awareness and participation and voice? Like, how do you make foreign policy more democratic? That's <laughs> what I don't know. If it can happen, it should. I just don't know how you do that. Um, so Corey like activated all these things in me. Second tweet, different Corey, spelled differently, Corey Shockey, who, uh, kind of a friend, she was at a think tank in London called IISS, and she's now at the American Enterprise Institute. They used to be like a staunch Republican think tank, but because they're focused on like free enterprise and laissez-faire, in the Trump era, they're, they're kind of like the lead conservative-ish resistance to Trump. So again, in the name of allies of convenience, right? So Maggie Caroline, who I think she runs NatSec Girl Squad, which if you're uh, one of my female listeners, which is not the majority of listeners demographically, then it's like it's like 60-40, I think, from what I saw on the stats. NatSec Girl Squad is a good thing to plug into if you're female and interested in national security, which is, you know, clever name, NatSec Girl Squad. And she tweeted, I'm really excited to see a bunch of people at Georgetown School of Foreign Service undergrad and grad students tomorrow night about having a career in national security. Um, and then she puts out on Twitter, she's like, what is something that they should not do or a mistake you made? And then Corey Shockey at AEI, she writes, DC is a very small town. Most national security decisions are 48-52 splits. Be respectful of views you don't agree with. I think this is true, and I think this is something that the critical left, the anti-imperial left, the, the left that has never tasted power doesn't understand. They because There's a lack of empathy. And if you're of the view that like Washington is just a swamp, it's all corrupt, everybody's operating off of groupthink, there are, there are ways in which all of that is actually true. But if that's your, if that's your view, it creates blind. <laughs> it's, tr it's true. But like, if that's your view and that's the end of the story, like it's just an unmitigated bad and there's no more nuance to it, then you're, you're going to naturally have the blind spot of writing off people that you work with or like an understanding of how policy is made and all these different yeah. inputs and voices. And like, even in the Congress, it's like, I wish Democrats were more partisan in the Congress, but I also know that if Democrats were like, militantly partisan the way republicans are there literally wouldn't be a functioning government yeah. so you know this is just a good reminder also like this this is almost this is like apolitical in a sense like yeah, it is. No. Yeah. just on a human level there are way there's planes on which you can argue and disagree and debate but there need to be like boundaries to it so she is uh, admittedly she's tapping into the liberal sensibility here a little bit which as i've expressed in a past episode like is 
is the soft underbelly of liberalism. It's like it's one of its vulnerabilities. But she also has a point, and it's just a good reminder. So shout out to Corey Shockey. Well, not to throw you under the bus or anything, but would you say there are no, I mean, not to throw you into the line of fire or anything, but would you say uh, there is any limits to that idea? Or like limits to civility or whatever? Yeah, kind of. It's like, yeah, be respectful yeah. of each other's views, which I'm like a big fan for, right? There's always like pros and cons of like any kind of like opinion. Yeah. Is it's like a, how does it manifest or how does yeah. disagreement manifest like one of the one of the good rules is like avoid ad hominems which sometimes i'll go at somebody in an ad hominem way usually it's because they're like way above me mm-hmm. and so i, I can I, i'm punching yeah. up still you yeah. know and so like that's legit so when bob Iger, head of disney says you know says something that is absolutely like anti-moral immoral uh or is bad for the country in just like self-interested politics, at that point, I can sound off about him as a shit human being. Yeah. And also, there's a little, to be honest, let's be honest, there's a little bit of shock jock element to this yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. yeah. I like to hold, I like to believe this show holds great academic integrity, man. It is truth to <laughs> power. Like, I'm, not, I'm not bullshitting anybody. I'm ruining my own chances for like a sinecure at the Hoover Institution. You know, (laughs) like there are lots of funders of foreign policy research who only fund research if you're interested in taking a dogmatic position. Either like you want to be like libertarian about foreign policy. You can get that like Coke money or whatever. Or you can be like a military primacist and get that defense industry money, get that Bill Gates money, that Google money that supports the sort of status quo kind of liberal internationalism. And I refuse to do both or like I'll entertain both. And like, yeah. it's based on truth to power. It's based on my own fucking judgments. And when I go ad hominem, it's also based on my own judgments. So none of this is self-serving. It's just like a core conviction that we, what society needs is truth to power. So the first tweet I found this week was from Greg Karlstrom, the author of how long will Israel survive the threat from within? That's not a plug. I just took that from his Twitter. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you want today in a tweet, the American president now facing an impeachment trial unveiled a proposal from his unqualified son-in-law to let Israel's caretaker government, led by an indicted prime minister, start annexing large tracts of occupied land, which, mic drop. (laughs) That is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's the problem. This is, he's describing, it sounds horrible and, again, immoral and politically impossible and highly coercive and unfair and yet that is precisely what the quote-unquote peace plan that trump unveiled is hugely problematic the palestinians have already said i mean this is why yeah the the palestinian like the prediction market answer is pretty obvious like the palestinians said this is a no-go but you didn't need to wait for the palestinian response to know that when you look at what was proposed they, it isolates Palestinian territories and fragments them. So it's, a, it's a, a bunch of shitty little areas, far less territory than they used to occupy or should occupy. They're pushed out of fucking Jerusalem. And they're, it, the, when you look at it on the map, it's, it's imperial in the sense that it's fracturing the periphery so that like this populace cannot be connected. It's blocked by Israeli roads and such and separated and far apart. It's literally a it's a geographic structure to impose control over a minority population. That's hardly a two state solution. So fuck this fake peace plan. To be fair, it just seems it's exactly what Trump was always going to do because he started it. I, I can't remember how many years or if it was maybe this last year where he. Oh, like we shouldn't be surprised where, where they yeah. moved, where they moved the um, capital. Well, they started recognizing yeah. Jerusalem as, yes. as capital. Yeah. That was a big step. Yeah. And I, I am, I am no prophet, but I haven't, <laughs> I happen to say that this is, that this is going to be bad in the future. You because too can do prediction markets. Yeah, yeah, because because at, at that point, when you recognize that is Israel's capital, then you're on a path to this sort of peace deal. Yeah, which yeah. is laughable. It's laughable. Not even it, even if you don't support Palestine necessarily, it's laughable as a peace deal because it's a, it's um it's a capitulation deal. If anything, that's what you'd put yeah. on an enemy. It's that's surrender terms. I forget who said yeah, it. But somebody called it terms. surrender terms. Yeah. 
that's what I want to know. I was like, on what grounds? Who's giving, you know, the Trump administration this information that's like, this is a great idea. You should definitely do it. Or if this is like, yeah, but that's Elon His was name like, rhymes with <laughs> Rebe Netanyahu. Ahem, <laughs> 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 ahem. Yeah, just like, <laughs> we're not pointing fingers, okay? We're just. <laughs> Fuck that, I am. Fuck that. No, we this absolutely are. No, I'm glad. The thing is, I'm glad everybody sees through it. Like when when Trump flirted with the idea of peace in Korea, he fractured the left because a lot of people on the left could not see through his bullshit. Like when somebody who lies 13,000 times in three years, when they say the word peace, do you believe them? You fucks. (laughs) But like half the left did. And it really fucked things up. Like it made it harder to speak truth to power analytically about the Korea situation. Like I caught a bunch of shit just for being honest. Um, not the first you, or last time. You an expert time. getting <laughs> shit for whatever. All right. So um, <laughs> crocodile. <tweet>. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. The second tweet I wanted to bring up this week comes from um Stephen Wertheim who is a historian and writer as well as the Deputy Director of Research and Policy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and also a research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Similar topic, since it seems to be a big thing this week. His tweet reads, Trump's peace plan, in quotes, is a sham, as many are noting. But just as the U.S. claims to be an honest broker is now transparently bunk after decades of being dubious, so should be the notion that a $738 billion military budget just passed with wide support is any path to global peace. Yeah. It's pretty savage. <laughs> so, yeah, this clearly builds on uh, Greg Carlstrom's tweet, and it's, it's news of the day, too. But the reason I wanted to flag this, the democratically led, democratically controlled House of Representatives are the ones who passed this massive defense budget. So like a few episodes, I railed against this. Not only my extreme displeasure and disappointment and surprise. Actually, that's it. It was displeasure, disappointment and surprise. (laughs) Like I'm I'm just befuddled by like how co-opted Democrats are. There is onesie twosies like the, the justice Democrats, the insurgent Democrats, the actual like the left left, very much a minority. They sounded off in a truth to power way. I know Ro Khanna gave a speech where he's like, don't vote for this defense appropriation, $738 billion, endless war. But that was the extent of it. And then it just passed anyways. And so all these people who call themselves Democrats, many who listen to the show, many who are my fucking friends, ultimately support this ridiculous defense payoff that just diverts money that could be used for other purposes into the defense slush fund and it's not serving good strategic purposes. I, w- I did not sound off like this before 2016, in part because I wasn't able to. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, ca- I was captured by the system. <laughs> but like a uh, part of it too was like, there was a rationale in the old way of thinking for military superiority because it underwrote a kind of foreign policy that got you things like global stability, like right, peace in, like, in various forms, like buying you out of arms races. So you got like a rising tide that lifts all boats. There were all kinds of problems with that, but it was like a worthwhile thing to do. And what we've seen now is like every once in a while, you might get somebody like Trump with their hand on the lever. They can't be trusted with this big military machine. It's not always going to be Obama. And if I'm being honest, Obama fucked up sometimes, too, on foreign policy. And so you can't expect I mean, most presidents probably won't be like Obama. Like it's probably like Trump might be more the norm now. And we can't know that. And there's all kinds of reasons now because of research and because of like what's happening in the world to think that like, you know, the price of primacy is not worth it. The price of military superiority is not worth it. The, the, the analysis, the strategic thinking in quotes that leads you to believe you need to spend $738 billion on defense is, is dangerous and wrong. It's one thing if it's just wrong and it's expensive and you're robbing from civil society. It's another thing when it's actually you're making the situation more dangerous, you yeah. stupid fuck. You read too much Herman Kahn and not enough yeah. Bob yeah. Jervis. Like, yeah. So we've got a problem here. Shout out to Steve Wertheim for uh, flagging it. Out of curiosity, is there like a level of being desynthesized when you hear the word billion dollars? You just like, feel like a billion dollars is a fuck ton of money. Well, yeah, billion dollars is a fuck ton of money. <laughs> but it is also, there is this desensitization 
desensitization. Yeah, I was trying to say the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> People are desensitized by these numbers because it's just like, it's like looking at numbers on a spreadsheet. Like, what does this mean to you? Or like body counts yeah. when you're like trying to evaluate a war. Like, it's just numbers, you know? Yeah. And it's it's so the norm. And so many people benefit from it within the like broader decision-making process that it looks like corruption. It's all legal, yeah. but it's like a form of corruption. You know, thumb on the scale. Elizabeth Warren is calling it out. <laughs> and that's where we're ending. <laughs> so that's what I said, with a good plug. And that's Stay that's Off good. Twitter. <laughs> Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it and converse your reckons. All right, for armchair analysis this week, we got a bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, piece. It's called The Low-Yield Nuclear Warhead, A Dangerous Weapon Based on Bad Strategic Thinking by Andrew Ficini. Ficini. Ficini? I, I just see the name yeah. and I was like, mm, Ficini. I like it. I like it. Um, and then it's, it's already in the title, right? Where, where this is going. And I like it because it starts off sort of trying to explain that in the unintuitive world of nuclear weapons, it is often difficult to identify decisions that can serve to decrease the risk, but instead sort of do the opposite. Everything is, yeah, when it's, when yeah. you're making strategic arguments about nukes, everything is like contestable. It, it still talks about the rising of the W76-2, the low-yield submarine nuclear weapon that the United States are beginning to test and field, and how through the attempt of bringing through a low-yield nuclear weapon sort of uh, deterrence model peacetime sort of nuke, it's actually going to do the opposite. It's going to increase nuclear tensions, increase all the theories that we learned about first year of international relations, the arms race. It's going to start all of that again with China because they cannot detect that this is low yield so it's still a nuclear strike regardless and increases the capability of first use mm -hmm. which scares the shit out of me yeah. considering our last conversation on first use you sort of explained what it was van yeah and how dangerous it is and sort of a low yield nuclear <laughs> device this is the opposite of managing it's the, the complete risk opposite. of first use it's the complete opposite it's, if anything it's increasing the already capable hands to do it and that scares the living shit out of me um so little known fact andrew Pacini did my map graphics tailor made for hey. the nuclear button the documentary i did so he's connected to the network of like non-pro people out in monterey and uh he was a huge help for that so if you watch the documentary you'll see some great maps and some not so great things that i did uh, <laughs> and then uh this piece obviously it's a great piece I had uh, three quick thoughts. One, the piece, like Andrew systematically negates all the plausible arguments in favor of tactical nukes. Mm. When you're done yeah. reading his piece, you're left with, okay, so what is the positive case for developing tactical nuclear weapons, low-yield nukes? And because of that, right now that the analytical case is won, the battle strategic of strategic arguments could not be clearly more in favor of this, right? Uh, in favor of Andrew's position. It is time now for this this issue of tactical nuclear weapons development to like be more in the political activist yeah, agenda. Definitely. We I, we've talked about this before. I talk about this in my security studies course. Like strategic arguments and strategic studies arguments like this, they're made in the on the grounds of like rationality, which is the same terrain as the people who argue for developing tactical nukes. When you could out argue them like this, we need to we need to marry that up with uh, moral arguments and political yeah, activism yeah. to go to the next step because we are on the sound strategic ground here. So let's build on this. Second thought: I am very pessimistic about the future of nuclear nonproliferation. I'm very pessimistic yeah. about it. I'm fatalistic about it. Frankly, Following this I am too. Funnily enough, yeah. And, but even despite that. I don't think we, the U.S., need to be making nuclear proliferation worse. I think you can be fatalistic about something and still do your damnedest to try and prevent the outcome just because it's the right thing to do. Funnily enough, in the article, Van, the nuclear posture review, United States review of the nuclear situation yeah, and what yeah. they're going to do like with de it. Declaratory policy. Yeah. And they call it, um, they say these lower strength tactical nukes really are 
preservation of credible deterrence against regional aggression. Yeah, that, that's the that's yeah. the statement, but it doesn't explain no. how. Like the, the it's not logical. And that's what this article does really well. It negates that entirely. As you know, we sort of got to know their arguments and use the same th- logic against them. That's right. That's right. That's what we're doing. I mean, plus nuclear modernization. This is part of nuclear modernization, and nuclear modernization is just tilting at windmills because of ultimately the strategic arguments for these things are not sound enough to justify the risks that you're taking. You're talking about the existence of us, man. And on your theoretical bet that doesn't make a ton of sense, you're going to spend gobs of money and risk the like first use instability. Like it's fucking whatever. It's it, also it's not credible because a nuke is a nuke. Like it's not going to be more effective at deterrence because it's still a fucking nuclear weapon and the threshold for using a nuke is still going to be insanely high and the U.S. has conventional weapons that could do the same levels of damage. So why are you going to break that threat? Like, Oh, and then the third thing, the fact that tactical nukes is even a thing, and I mentioned this, it reflects a view of like a, a perspective on policymaking that I find irresponsible, which is that like policymakers can manage risk or they can exploit risk especially in the kind of nuclear and national security space and i i think we have a responsibility to manage risk when there's like a five percent chance of war based on current policies you should be asking yourself what can we do to decrease that to a one percent chance of war or a two percent chance of war and then that's the kind of thing you should be doing with your policies what the trump administration is doing instead and what advocates for nukes usually do instead is to say Oh, there's only a five percent chance of war. This is great. Or, <laughs> or we can we have a lot of margin to increase yeah, the yeah, risks of yeah. war. How much deterrence can we get? It's like, and it's five. it's yeah. fucking yeah. psycho. It's like they're already having their ha- as they're saying everything. Their hand is r- on top of the button to press launch. Yeah, you should. <laughs> the, the American people, any any democratic nation, should not want their policymakers exploiting risk. You're playing in the margins of whether we exist in the future people's lives in mass you know they came up with this because of imagined scenarios yeah. uh which yeah you read an article right so i kind of wanted to ask how far exactly do you take these imagined scenarios this are uh, like a million steps to go from, or not even a million it takes quite a few steps to go from how the current state of political affairs are at the moment to russia's you know using a small nuclear weapon yeah you know, kind of like what the jump is well, so you have to use scenarios. Scenarios are always imagined. Yeah. You have to use scenarios as a basis or one of the inputs into deciding for structure, deciding your defense budget, deciding to uh, build and field weapons like this. The problem is that like the scenario, because it's not real, can't be your best argument for spending billions of dollars and destroying the risking the destruction of the planet this scenario has to be something that you use as like a data point at best especially when and again it's like when there's so much at risk and you're increasing the risk with this decision using the scenario cannot be decisive it cannot be where you're hanging all of your the credibility of your arguments on but that's kind of what's happening here yeah Basically, they're relying on the ignorance of peaceniks, the ignorance of the left and the corruption of people in the Democratic Party or their like lack of strategic thinking. They're relying on all of that to get by on weak strategic arguments. Like if this was a sound strategic argument, I would be willing to take it seriously. But I've looked at this in government. I've looked at it out of government. I know the literature. I read the same fucking shelling that he that. You know, the tech nuke guys read. I don't come to the conclusion that we should be exploiting nuclear risk. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to give you one chance to bring a bit of hope into this topic. Because at the end of this article, right, um, this is a quote from it. What's needed most today is not just a technological reboot of the low-yield nuclear warhead. The field needs new voices, ideas, and perspectives. Mm. How optimistic are you about being able to curb these trends? Yeah, so long term, so I've been pretty clear with that. Long term, <laughs> yeah, long term I'm quite like, pessimistic, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, fatalistic even. Yeah. In the <laughs> short term, though, and like I reconcile this a little bit with if Warren became president or something, or like some somebody on the left became president, I do think that there is a movement afoot among like left technocrats, which is like sort of my 
my space. <laughs> there's a mo- there's a movement. There's there's not a lot of us. Uh, there's a movement afoot to folk like if you want to put it in analytical terms, to restructure our defense capabilities and our weapon systems to strongly emphasize defense dominance as opposed to offense dominance. So in the like in the sense of like the concept of the offense defense balance, because if defensive weapons obviously and if your if your military posture is defensive and that's what it signals and so much so that you hinder your ability to conduct certain kinds of offensive attack it's inherently credible it's inherently more stabilizing unless you think it emboldens the adversary which i don't think it does and the bet of smart progressives who know this stuff like national security progressives for lack of a better phrase their bet my bet is that if we can more credibly signal kind of benign intent and defensive intentions, that will that will stabilize patterns of international relations. That will lend itself to the nuclear stability and the deterrence that uh, new cocks want to see. You can you can see how that would be very difficult to explain to a John Doe voter. Yeah, though that's saying trying to trying to explain that limiting our our attempt at offensive weaponry. This is, is one of the limitations of demo- democratizing foreign yeah. policy. This is a decision where unless you educate the voter about yeah. nuclear strategy, they have to outsource to experts. Yeah. And well, what other way is there around it? There are cases like this where you have to rely on experts. It's the nature of international politics. I want to get to the place where like we can you, 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 you almost need like a kind of global literacy to be able to have a democratic foreign policy. Well, there's a reason it's a university subject. Mm-hmm. It's not sure. taught at high school. And it's this sort of thing. This is because I get Shouldn't I get it a lot when I go home for the holidays, you know. What are you actually studying? And it's like, well this, funnily yeah. enough. Yeah. Because this is only a perspective that could come from education. I mean, maybe I'm getting high on my own supply here, but like <laughs> the whole point of how this podcast is done with fuck Bob Iger and yeah. like dropping F bombs and like being fucking normal, being honest and not talking like a fucking wooden robot. The whole point of all of that is to make it accessible. And maybe if it's accessible, that fucking dope smoking friend of yours <laughs> who's dropping out of university yeah. will still be interested in listening to it, you know? Van, Accidentally you have, pick up something. I can tell I can tell you now, you have about eight of those people. <laughs> listening to you from Gisborne, New Zealand. <laughs> and I can guarantee you that they're listening and they're like, hey, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm the don't smoke in university yeah. dropout. <laughs> hey. Well, I can only hope that we're reaching people who are not like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, now it's time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So um, our first question this week comes from Patrick Foran, who asks, do you think prediction is very useful for IR? Is it getting harder or easier? Shout out Patrick, friend of the pod. His email also said he thinks it's getting harder. And I think that he's correct. I also think we can't take prediction too seriously. Um, We suck at prediction as a species. Like if we could, the world would be so different if we actually could predict accurately, right? I'm going to ask Patrick and you, Van, to stop throwing shade at prediction market. (laughs) We work very, we work very hard on this segment, (laughs) and you know, I'm I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm just sitting there, and it's on my ass, and I was like, you know what, guys, you know, fuck all of you, fuck all of you, I'm out of here. I totally forgot about prediction market. What the fuck is wrong with me? I mean, prediction is great, and people are good at it. Um, Don't keep changing your mind on this podcast. I'm actually doing a pretty good job, which I'm like almost disproving my own case here. Um, I think international relations, the whole point of this like field of study is to generate ways of thinking, generate ways of like making sense of the world. I am very skeptical about the people who are political scientists, many of you are listeners, who think that we're engaged in a process of like truth finding. We, 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 if we analyze the data the right way and we tweak the data set the right way and we have the right control variables, that suddenly we will have truth. And then that truth can be gospel. 
I think that's overestimating things. Okay, so our next question comes from James Loftus um, from the Center of Arms Control and Nonproliferation. He has asking, is conscription in South Korea a net positive or negative for the overall readiness of rock armed forces, rock alliance? It's hard to say whether it's good or bad on balance, but what I'll say for sure, like about the effect of uh, conscription, mandatory service in South Korea, it is a conservatizing force. And what's really interesting is that half the country has blinders on about North Korea they don't see North Korea as like a threat, really. They think North Korea is like this stray cousin who smokes <laughs> too much dope or whatever, you know, like misunderstood North Korea, their kin. And they, half the country has that view in spite of every male having to serve in the military, right? In spite of mandatory service. And so it's interesting because like conscription does socialize everybody to the reality of the military. I think it makes people more pro-alliance on balance. I, I guess personally, I think that's a, a good thing, but like that can be argued either way. Um, but it definitely is like a conservatizing force. Like it helps the political conservative cause in South Korea. Does it help the United States? I don't know, or I don't think so, except that it buoys it popular opinion for the alliance, I think, yeah. in, in some indirect ways. But if you shifted to like an all-volunteer force, um, I think... The in the near term, the politics of all of this would not change much. The The real risk of an all-volunteer force in South Korea is that like their contribution to the alliance in like a war fighting sense is that they are leading the ground forces fight. And they're providing the most manpower. Mm. And South Korean military already has manpower shortages. So South, they're trying to make up for that by becoming more technologically advanced. But that's the comparative advantage of the U.S. military. So there are big like strategic, if you're interested in the warfighting part of this and the deterrence part of it, there are big strategic questions that are at play or that are at risk with uh, South Korea if they shifted to an all-volunteer force. Mm -hmm. But not everybody cares about those questions is the thing, right? If half your country thinks North Korea is not even a threat, those questions are moot. So, so it's kind of a mixed bag. All right, gang, that's going to do it. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic. Uh, subscribe to the newsletter. Get smart and woke like us. And uh, we'll see you soon. Peace.